Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Today's program focuses on the alignment of educational practices with economic opportunities for students. Stated simply, how can educational experiences be structured in ways that give students the best opportunities for employment and sustainable income potential? This is a critical issue facing our country and very many regions in the country, as available evidence shows that the high school diploma, once a traditional credential for advancing employment opportunity, has increasingly diminished impact on wage earnings. I'm joined today by several collaborators on an initiative recently documented in a report from the Urban Institute, a nonprofit research institute in Washington, D.C. The report, titled New Evidence on Integrated Career Pathways, discusses results from the Accelerating Opportunity Initiative, which was funded in part by several foundations, including the, Mil- the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. My guests today are Dr. Barbara Endel, the Senior Director of Jobs for the Future, who led the Accelerating Opportunity Initiative, examined in the report. Also joining us is President Monty Sullivan of the Louisiana Community and Technical College System and Peggy Henrick, Vice President for Teaching, Learning, and Student Development at Elgin Community College in Elgin, Illinois. Uh, Welcome to all three. Thank you, Scott. Glad to be here. Thank you, Scott. So I I think to set the stage for the discussion before we actually get into the details of what Accelerating Opportunity is, Barbara, could you start by sort of explaining to listeners what we mean when we're talking about credentials that a student accumulates as they matriculate through their educational experience, and why are those credentials important? Sure, thank you. Maybe I'll start with why they're important and set the stage to someone, and then we can talk about credentials. So first of all, I call this problem in our country a silent crisis. It's really looking at the 29 million people who don't have a high school diploma or GED or a credential. And when you look at the statistics, like 52 million Americans in jobs that make less than $35,000 a year, you know, this is a very big problem talking about how do we unlock the the talent of, of many millions of people in our country. So when we think about credentials, what these credentials are, they're college degrees, such as associate's degree or a bachelor's degree, but there's also other credentials that certify skills such as welding or pharmacy or information technology. These credentials are sometimes issued by the IT industry, sometimes they're issued by the uh, community college, sometimes they're issued through a licensure organization. But what they all add up to is that they're able to show if a student earns one of these, and particularly in a high demand job, it shows that they've got the skills and competencies and the training needed to get a good job. And that's what we're all about, the economic mobility of this country, helping people move up into higher wages. And just before I turn to, to Monty for a question, Barbara, the, one of the one of the points that was made in the report that I read, which which I found very fascinating, the whole thing, is that the the traditional credential of the high school diploma is having less uh, of an impact on wage earning. Is that an accurate statement for my impression of the report? Oh, Scott, you're absolutely on track, and I think when Monty uh, has some of his comments throughout this. Um, interview, he'll really showcase what that looks like. But in research from one of our good colleagues at Georgetown University, just 1%, such a small percentage of the labor market, 1% in the post-recovery 
has jobs have been added requiring a high school diploma or less. So as the knowledge economy continues to grow, uh, we need students that are thinking about these post-secondary credentials beyond that high school degree. It's just not going to cut it anymore in today's knowledge-based economy. Very good. Uh, Monty, let's turn to you. Maybe you could start by describing the system that you're president of in, in Louisiana and, and then go into talking about sort of the the interface between your system and the students in Louisiana with the labor force there and, and bringing home this point about the, the lack of preparedness in terms of credentials and, and educational attainment relative to income. Absolutely. First of all, Scott, thank you for the opportunity and thank you for your interest in accelerating opportunities uh, uh, initiative. It's, uh, I think, a great story to be told and has implications broadly. Uh, Louisiana's community and technical colleges are 13 institutions. Uh, we are about 130,000 students strong across Louisiana. Uh, and, and in particular, we have a responsibility for adult basic education as a part of, of our, our mission. But in addition to that, also uh, the workforce responsibility. And when you put those two side by side, what you quickly realize is the population of Louisiana, uh, it, it absolutely requires uh, that we provide that workforce training opportunity uh, for people to be able to, to be, as Barbara described it, um, economically uh, and socially mobile. The Accelerating Opportunities Initiative really has helped us to, to uh, adjust our thinking, if you will, in three ways. One, by helping us to think about who we serve. Uh, secondly, by, by uh, thinking about what it is that we teach, what we provide from a programmatic perspective, and then finally, how we, how we go about providing that instruction. Uh, the who component, uh, this, this initiative really forced us to go back and look at the demographics of Louisiana. We hear employers talk about the skills gap. What we learned is Louisiana is 4.6 million people. We're 2.3 million working age adults. And of those 2.3 million working age adults, 600,000 adults. Uh, do not hold a high school diploma. Uh, roughly 1.25 million adults in Louisiana have never attended college and haven't received that the, the, the skills training uh, opportunities that really are the difference maker in terms of earnings. Uh, this adult population has a very thin cushion in life, as you heard Barbara refer to a few minutes ago. Their earnings uh, leave them in a place in life where they really don't have uh, an opportunity to take a risk on a program that may or may not succeed. So program alignment with the economy and ensuring that someone completing a credential will equate to a lifestyle and a, and a job uh, with earnings that will provide them with a better place in life uh, is absolutely essential. So that really gets at the what component. It's no secret Louisiana has been through pretty substantial reductions in state general fund. We've lost um, about $80 million uh, over the last nine years as a community and technical college system. Uh, many would bemoan that fact, but the reality is it's caused us to narrow our menu of offerings substantially uh, and required that we become more aligned with the economy. Creating those career pathways have been, have been a strong part of the Accelerating Opportunities Initiative. And then finally, providing instruction uh, in a way that, that helps individuals who perhaps haven't finished high school integrating career and technical education uh, instruction alongside the basic uh, skills work that needs to be done in the classroom has, has really helped us to improve how we deliver instruction to traditional students.
Based upon what Monty just described, which was sort of that lack of alignment in the state of Louisiana, I presume that that's a lack of alignment that you see really across the country. And and I also assume that it's something that is is important not only for traditional uh, students, uh, you know, going through at a traditional age relative to their time in school, but also for adult learners. Is that correct? That is definitely correct. We just see this as being an issue that it, it, it's, it's agnostic and strikes at the heart of every student. So it doesn't matter if you're 18 or 80, if you have a high school diploma or even less, um, your chances of being constrained in this knowledge-based economy w- w- will continue. And, you know, we know that this is also an equity issue. Um, still, you know, both women and African-American and Latinos, even if they um, have the same level of edu- education, uh, make just 75% or even less than, than white males. So you're behind the eight ball even before you get started if you don't at least try to advance into these post-secondary and high-value credentials. And it doesn't matter what age, 18 or 80. So let's transition to talking specifically then about the Accelerating Opportunity Initiative. And uh, Barbara, maybe we could start by having you talk about what the broad uh basis of the intervention was. And then um, when you're done talking about that, having Monty talk about how he witnessed that in his system at more of a local level. Of course, happy to. So we're so excited about this model. It really stands on the broad shoulders of our colleagues in Washington State who began a program called IBEST eight years ago. This is a program that basically permitted students who, who wouldn't maybe have their high school diploma or GED to actually do two things at once. While at the same time, they're working on their GED and their foundational learning, they could also co-enroll into college courses. So five years ago, a group of foundations came together and asked my organization, Jobs for the Future, could we build and take this IBEST model, which has been so successful in Washington state, can it work in other states and other contexts? Is it just something special to Washington or could it work other places? So we were so thrilled and honored to be able to have the chance to try it in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a few other states, uh, including Louisiana, uh, Georgia, Illinois, Kentucky, Kansas, um, Arkansas, Mississippi, and just four of those then were included in the evaluation. But this is a model that basically permits students to co-enroll um, in their GED prep program with college courses and it makes the curriculum relevant because they're interested in, in, for example, math that would help them with their welding certificate that they're working on, uh, English that's going to help someone with their medical assisting, et cetera. So this is a model that basically has team teachers and contextualized instruction and wraparound support services that, that really make all the difference with getting students to a much higher success rate. And you know, Barbara, that's a that's a great uh, description. I think there, there are just a, a couple of components that have have really shown a great deal of promise for us here in Louisiana, both in terms of serving the accelerating opportunities population, but also in, in serving the broader, more traditional population. First and foremost, the, the contextualized learning that that goes on within uh, what Barbara has just described from our, our great colleagues uh, who who really developed and and. Uh, perfected the the IBEST model, really sort of reminds us that context does matter in the classroom. Uh, Learning needs to be tied back to what is important to our students, what is important uh, from a a career perspective. 
And, and I, I think one, one thing that I, I hope your listeners really come to understand through this discussion of accelerating opportunities is it's not simply about a credential. It's about a pathway that will include multiple credentials over time, multiple job opportunities over time, earnings that are sustained over time, and a difference in lifestyle. If it is the, the first credential earned as a part of accelerating opportunities is just that. It's the first rung. It's the first opportunity. But long term, we see students uh, who learn how to learn as a result of this contextualized uh, instruction happening in the classrooms. Can't say enough about the wraparound services provided to, to these students. Uh, you have to remember that the population that we serve as a part of accelerating opportunities uh, the, it, it is probably the most at-risk population in our colleges in Louisiana. They're dealing with, uh, with, with financial issues, with transportation issues, with childcare issues, the whole gamut. In addition to the academics, in addition to the challenges of the classroom and the laboratories. Um, but what, we've, what we found and what was probably the most uh, inspiring to me as a part of this is in spite of all of those challenges, these students, once they got into the classroom and had little successes, small successes along the way, they were simply on fire. They wanted more. They wanted to know what the next step would be, what is, what is the next credential, what is the next job. And that, that really inspires others around them to begin to think about uh, what, it, what is next in their own lives. But also it causes our faculty to begin to think about how they change, how they provide instruction to the traditional student because they see this excitement that's happening in adult students. So it is, it's been transformative for our organization. Barbara, how were uh, students and or uh, institutions selected to be part of the Accelerating Opportunity Initiative? Of course. So um, the original states that were selected um, were all, there are roughly 14 states in the nation where adult basic education programs are connected to post-secondary. And that's, it, it may not make a lot of sense to people, but the reason why that happens is for this reason, like generally speaking, only three to 6% of students who start out at the very entry point in their learning with their GED instruction, for example, ever make it into post-secondary education and training. So this is a huge issue. So a few states have said, let's try to put these you know, programs more together with the hopes that we could transition more students. So we started with that group of states and issued a, a request for a proposal. So we wanted to get a sense from the states uh, and go with those that were very motivated and who had a plan and who wanted to buy in to testing out and experimenting with us. So that's how we got to the, we had four states that we, are, that we eventually included, including Illinois, Kansas, Kentucky, and then through Monty's terrific leadership in Louisiana. So those were our core states. And then at each of those core states, they had the latitude to pick at least eight community colleges that, again, were sort of this coalition of the willing, who's willing to hold hands with us and try some new models, break some rules, let students into college courses that have never had a shot at getting in before. And then from that, the program just grew. We had about 33 community colleges total in that first year. And by the end of our third year, the states quickly saw how you know, beneficial this was and the, the impact and the effect. And, and now we've got a, a group of about 85 community colleges with this sustained in almost every state. Obviously, one of the things that you just mentioned that was a critical part of the program was the fact that you 
you sped up the entrance of students into the college classrooms as they were obtaining their GED. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been qualified. The second component, though, of the program that, that Monty described is that there was a wraparound support for those students once they got into those courses. Monty, as you thought about rolling this program out in your system, I assume that there had to be a lot of thought about how to work with faculty to be prepared to help these students succeed. Can you talk about that component a bit? A great deal of, absolutely, a great deal of professional development for our faculty. In fact, uh, it's, it's interesting that we're having this discussion on this day because we just wrapped up uh, two days of ongoing professional development uh, with a colleague from Kentucky who is uh, continues the work of helping our faculty to think through ways that we can be more effective at serving the broad needs of our students. Uh, again, this is a population with many, many challenges that go well beyond the academic. Uh, but but what it what it um, what it provides for is an opportunity for our faculty to to think through the issues that our students are facing, and and also uh, at the same time to to remain focused on the learning objectives and the outcomes that are are required. Uh, from a policy perspective, uh, th- this initiative fundamentally changed how we approach admissions. Uh, as was just pointed out, it's so important that these students be allowed access to a college classroom early uh, because the high school diploma is simply not enough to change their, their personal circumstance from an employment point of view and earnings point of view. Uh, so one of, the, one of the steps that we took, I think a fairly bold step at the time, was to eliminate the high school diploma as a requirement for entry into our colleges. Uh, that, was, that was a bit of a step for us from a policy point of view, and frankly, I think a, a pretty substantial step nationally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what, but, but, the, but the purpose of the high school diploma uh, over time is clear that these students want to complete the high school equivalency. It's not that they are avoiding that, but simply uh, allowing that student to be admitted to college in order to be able to access the critically important career and technical education instruction uh, that, helps to, the, that helps then to provide the context for, for the uh, adult basic education kind of instruction, the English and the math. And so uh, uh, the onboarding process is something that we had to spend a great deal of time uh, working through and talking through. Uh, but, but I think what, what many of our faculty believed on the early, uh, in the early phases, and frankly, I believed it myself, uh, was that this would be dramatically different for our faculty. They would have to begin to think about ways that they would adjust the way they provided instruction. Instead, what happened? was the success with the Accelerating Opportunity students fundamentally changed how we teach traditional students. And I've made that point a couple of times, but I got to tell you, to see it in action uh, really excites you about education and about where we're headed uh, and how we we train uh, individuals, how we upskill, how we provide opportunities to people. We, we've been talking in, in sort of a, a conceptual sense about what the program was in terms of uh, fast-tracking the admission of students and then how those students are supported. Um, very, very good um, explanations of those from you. I wonder if we could get into some examples of specific career pathways that were created. Peggy, maybe you could start that, and then, and then Monty could talk about some examples on his, in his system. Sure. Um, the first pathway we uh, selected back in you know, 2010, 2011 was actually welding. And we chose that because of the fact that there was a, a high labor market demand in our local area for welders, but also because anecdotally, we knew from some of the students in our ESL program that they had an interest in welding. And we um, 
because it was a short time frame right in the beginning, we knew we had some faculty on the career technical side who would be willing and interested in working with underprepared adult learners as well, which is a really important factor to consider um, when implementing the program. And so welding was our very first um, pathway. And we followed that up with um, CNC, computer numerical control operator, dental office aid, and heating, ventilation, air conditioning, refrigeration. And again, all of those, it was important to us that they they be tied um, to the reality of being able to get a job upon completion. And also that they are all programs that have stackable certificates so that you could uh, complete the accelerating opportunity certificate, but then continue on all the way up through an associate's degree and beyond uh, when you finish the program. So in, in your on your campus, well, in your role where you're mm-hmm. the, uh, the vice president for teaching, learning, and student development, what, how did you pay attention to the faculty side of this? Because I I assume that um, like any you know uh, sort of uh, important initiatives like this, it's not just a matter of creating the programs. You also have to make sure that the faculty are not only on board, but also the way that they teach students in these programs might be very different than your traditional aged uh, college students. So, what approaches did you take with your faculty to make sure that the faculty were part of that that wrapping of support around the student? Uh, to achieve success? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll be perfectly honest. In the very beginning, um, we were very careful to hire the faculty on the adult education side who would be present in the career technical courses with all of the students, and then they teach a separate support course. When we selected them, we were looking for people who could leave their ego at the door and who could go into the classroom not judging whatever techniques they saw occurring and not trying to dictate how the career technical teachers might be delivering instruction, but that their job was to fill in the gaps, you know, identify the areas where students were missing things, or maybe they were using a PowerPoint and going really quickly and delivering a lot of tough vocabulary they then would sort of remediate all of that in the support class later. So I think characteristics were important because on the career technical side, the faculty are already in place. So, you know, getting their buy-in for us, that we had interested faculty who were willing to do it. They had some concerns about the level of the students and the integrity of their curriculum. But we said from the start, we're not asking you to modify your curriculum. We're not asking you to lower your standards. We want you to, you know, in fact, our students were largely um, blended in with some students who were not in accelerating opportunity. So they really were, you know, the very same classes, Mm -hmm. um, but they were receiving additional support. And it's taken time in some of those pathway areas to build the trust But I'll give one example of, I think, over time what can occur um, in welding is a good example. The basic skills instructor, in her way of breaking down math and fractions and measurement and things, the faculty on the career tech side have since sort of woven that into their regular instruction for all of their classes, even those that aren't in the initiative. And so I think that that's the kind of cross-pollinating that happens. 
um, in the program. But it, it is important to have uh, willing and accepting faculty and also to find a couple of champions, you know. Mm-hmm. And then as the success starts to be evident and shown and your completion rates rise and students are doing well and enrollment rises because you have this new funnel of students coming in, then it makes other faculty interested in that initiative for their own area. And that's kind of how we've been able to grow it over time. So, Monty, I know in Louisiana, you guys have done just about as good a job as any in the country of aligning uh, pathway selection to local labor markets and demand. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the way you've worked so successfully with employers uh, in this program and approach. Absolutely, and and I'll I'll just choose one uh, one of the fields the the, the fields uh, that Barbara has has mentioned uh, are are absolutely spot on. Uh, but I think it's important to note that those would be variable uh, region by region and economy by economy. Uh, here in Louisiana, we have had a tremendous amount of of industrial uh, development, uh, uh, several hundred billion dollars worth of new uh, facilities being built along the I-10 corridor, and part of that requires an an expanded and a growing uh, workforce in the construction fields. And so construction is one of those areas that we're beginning to see more and more industry-based certifications developed. And so that is one of the one of the pathways. Uh, just a quick story of a, of a, of a, a very special student uh, here at Baton Rouge Community College that uh, we have just so much enjoyed watching his development uh, and the work that's gone on there. Uh, just an amazing industry partnership with Praxair, an international organization that has provided uh, a great deal of resources to uh, to these um, students as well as to the program uh, and, and also provide an opportunity to those students. Uh, we um, at, developed this uh, initiative at Baton Rouge Community College. We were advertising in a, on a hot summer day and uh, this young man named Aaron Martinez happens to have his, his own um, lawn service and he gets in his vehicle and uh, obviously no air conditioning in the middle of Louisiana in the summertime and he hears a, an advertisement on the radio for an accelerating welding program. Uh, and he calls his wife and he said, well, can you cancel my afternoon mowing uh, appointments? I'm, I'm going down to the college. He shows up at Baton Rouge Community College and uh, six months later, he graduated from Baton Rouge Community College with a high school diploma uh, and a, a certification in welding. Uh, one year later, he earned over $80,000 in that year and he and his wife moved from a rented apartment uh, to owning their own home. Uh, and, and he also joked that he had a vehicle with an air conditioner and that made a big difference for him. Uh, the, the stories of Aaron Martinez uh, and all of the other thousands of students are, are not just simply filling a skills gap for our economy or solving a problem for industry. They are fundamentally changing the li- lives of individuals and of families and of communities. And that is the, the essence and the heart and soul of what Accelerating Opportunities is all about. But I have to tell you, that success story simply would not have happened without the commitment that was there from Praxair, our industry partner. I really appreciate the human face that both of you, through those examples, put on this program. I think that stories like that um, really resonate with how uh, this sort of an approach to um, assisting students um, can have such a meaningful impact for them personally, uh, which is really at the heart of why I think many of us got into education in the first place. 
maybe, um, Barbara, if you could talk in more aggregate terms. So we've got two really great and, and resonating examples of people that benefited from this. In a more aggregate sense, what types of um, data did you observe from this program in terms of how it helped you achieve the goals that you were trying to achieve? Yeah, absolutely, Scott. Thanks for that opportunity. So across all of the states, not just the four that were in the evaluation, I think it's worth noting that we really cared about that this not be a boutique program or something that was just in a few different places. So we had over 10,000 students that participated. They earned well over 12,000 post-secondary credentials, and that added up to 96,000 college credits. These are students, again, that would very unlikely have made it into these college courses, into these college programs. And so uh, 85 community colleges, seven states, and we've got a lot of interest from other states and sort of now looking uh, at this program, knowing we've got a, an evidence base to it and really great ambassadors like Monty talking about this with his peers. And then from from really the empirical standpoint, this program um, was able to show that students were in between 11 and 20% more likely to attain credentials than students not in the program to their comparison group. And also that when you, we looked at medium and long-term credentials in terms of earnings, those students uh, earned more than their students in the comparison group. So not only, and they're getting through quicker, so they took even fewer credits. Um, and I think Monty well knows this as well as, you know, a lot of the listeners there. Time is the enemy when students are going through programs. They can't afford uh, to, to be in courses and programs longer than they need to be. They want to be out working, providing for their families. So this was also, you know, we kind of held true to our name. It was an accelerated program in that we really pr made colleges and uh, states think intentionally about what that program of study looked like. So we are so pleased with the evidence base and think it'll really change a lot of hearts and minds across the country to help both states and colleges and governors and mayors and presidents and community college deans, et cetera, really rethink how uh, underprepared adult learners are serviced and the success they really can show. Monty, anything you want to add to that? No, that's very well said, uh, Barbara. And I, I think the long-term uh, impact is is both the scale that is happening at uh, in 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 the, in the states that participated in accelerating opportunities, and then also the cross-pollination that's happening across the across the country. I really sort of frame it within four areas. One is the policy change I mentioned a second ago, uh, the the admissions application and the high school requirement. But there are others. Uh, an initiative here, a financial aid initiative in Louisiana, referred to as Five for Six, which uh, can describe much more uh, de in detail a little later. Uh, the second is broader industry investment. Uh, in addition to partners like Praxair, J.P. Morgan Chase saw this as an opportunity and invested a million dollars in Louisiana students because they believed in this model. Uh, and then, you know, next, uh, the, the braided funding approach that was brought to bear in, in the midst of, of uh, all of the discussion of accelerating opportunities. And then finally, as I mentioned before, the fundamental change in the who, what, and how we provide uh, educational opportunities to people uh, has has just uh, continues to change uh, every single day in, in how we deliver instruction and, and uh, skills training in Louisiana. So hearing you talk about this, obviously there has to be a, um, a link between the student, the institution, and the, the local or regional economic base to ensure that the pathways that are created is aligned to the needs and the opportunities. 
in you, in doing that, how how do you create pathways that are somewhat future proof? And the context behind this question, um, and, and President Sullivan, you know this well, that that universities and colleges move at glacial paces in terms of changing curriculum and creating programs like these. It takes time to do it because of shared governance and because of, of, of the nature of a university or a college setting. So when you make one of these, you want to make sure that it's not um, a flash-in-the-pan sort of program, that it's something that will have sustainability and meeting needs over a, a medium to long-term period of time so that there's not a lot of work put into something that only lasts for a couple of years. So that's a long way of asking the question, if, if universities are trying to create these well-aligned pathways and they're putting the effort into doing that, what's the sweet spot for ensuring that these pathways will have a, a, a suitable sustainability so that they don't sort of end up um, going away because of a change in the economy or something like that? Sure. Great question. And, and so very important that we don't sh- uh, sell out or short sell uh, adults. In particular, when they when, when these people are finally are able to take uh, to get life into a position where they can go back to school and and earn that education, uh, they they need to know that there's a guarantee on the back end. These programs, if if you notice, we're not talking about a single credential program. We're talking about pathways. The difference between a single credential program and pathways is time. And, and, and I think long-term, it is risk mitigation against exactly what you're describing in terms of, uh, sort, of sort of being able to deal with the future issue. Uh, so w- one of the ways that we have been able to do that is not only uh, by using labor market data to identify what is in demand today, but to also be able to then take the credential that is in demand today and begin to plot what is the next step, the next credential uh, the next training, the next job opportunity that will follow those. Uh, it's it's um, a, a dead-end career that can be replaced by uh, automation is, is, is not going to sustain that family over time. And we have to recognize that in, uh, early on and, and ensure that we're not uh, providing instruction that is a dead-end. And, and the, the pathways notion, and, and really, if you look at it more broadly, the pathways movement nationally uh, really is about that point of ensuring that you're helping someone to not only earn the credential today, but also giving them the skills to know how to learn going forward, uh, to to understand the soft skills necessary to be able to remain employed long term. And then finally, the piece that oftentimes gets lost in, in this discussion is the critical thinking skill that is that is so very uh, necessary in any job uh, uh, workplace and, and that critical thinking skill set is the one that oftentimes we hear from employers uh, that they're really looking for someone who has that ability to think through the problem of what, what may happen next, how you might anticipate some of the impact of what's going on in the workplace. When you combine those, I think what you, what you find is you've prepared someone for whatever job market uh, may present itself over time and whatever skill set may be necessary to be successful therein. And Monty, um, you know, I completely agree with you. And one of the things that at Jobs of the Future, we've been doing a lot of work around uh, our new CEO, Maria Flynn in particular, is this idea on like, what is the future of work going to look like? And what we've been advocating is, you know, in really on the ground ways, and Monty, see if this resonates with you and the work you and your colleges are doing. It's making sure that we've got more touch points with employers in, in more strategic ways. 
So many times things are fairly transactional, but in programs and pathways like Accelerating Opportunity, how can we make sure we're building in work-based learning opportunities where we've got skin in the game from the employers, where you've got that ability to um, have a coalition of employers help inform your pathways so that it's more than just one single employer or one single certificate, Monty, as you so uh, aptly described, but actually have more touch points, more feedback loops, just to make sure that the certificates, the skill sets are really what's going to be in demand. And I feel like, you know, community colleges are able to do that a little more nimbly than other parts of the sector. Uh, you're absolutely right, Barbara. And I think it's it, it really comes back to establishing those business relationships and establishing a trust relationship with the with the students. And ultimately, I, I think in, in higher education broadly, uh, we have a we have we have to some extent lost a, a sense of focus on what it is we are we are selling as a product, and our students. If we will listen to our students, they tell us what we're selling. Uh, these students are are saying to us over and over again, "I'm interested in 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 earning this credential, but I'm really interested in going to work with this organization." And and our college has a relationship with that organization. Can you help me get there? That is not the traditional discussion that we've had with students. Uh, we, we oftentimes sell our institutions and our programs in a, in a way that is uh, a bit ambiguous to our student population. This adult population, because of their life circumstance, requires that we are very specific in what that deliverable will be for them. And I think that clarity has been helpful to us. Yeah, and this commi commitment to lifelong learning, absolutely. Yeah, I, I would say from my perspective at a primarily traditionally aged uh, residential campus, um, we do have regional campuses that there's a different demographic, but at least on the, the main campus in Athens for OU, it's a tra traditional aged student population. And I think that even for that population, we're starting to ask the question about how we can align the learning experiences for the next five years after graduation, which, which Monty, as you pointed out, is not the traditional way that higher education has thought about the value of our degrees. But as you and I were talking before the program, if we don't start thinking that way, the value of our degrees will be diminished. Absolutely. So, so a couple, I, I've got a couple of additional questions. This is such a fascinating uh, topic and, and an important one, and, and we're not going to be able to do justice for it in just the length of this program. So I really encourage listeners to not only look at the report, but also to delve more deeply into what accelerating opportunity is. Um, Barbara, I want to come back to you and, and ask a question about the alignment of the pathways for students and, and the economies in which they live. It seems to me that there's a critical second step that not only are they obtaining the credential or set of credentials that the pathways provide, but then do you actually start to see evidence that their income potential changes as a result of that? Now, we heard two examples where clearly that did. Are, is there any aggregate evidence about that that you've been able to look into? And do you have any ideas on how to strengthen that second stage of impact uh, so that the earning potential will increase going forward for these students? Yeah, absolutely, Scott. It's a really great question. And, you know, one, we've, we've often had really uh, deep conversations with our evaluation team. We wish initiatives like this were longer so that we could track students who exit the program 
um, what the, what does their earnings look like over more time than generally the one or two or three quarters, four quarters, we're able to really look because we what we do is we take the student, um, what they were earning before, during the program, and then as best we can up to eight quarters or, or a little less than two years after they exit if the timing sort of works out that way. So when we were able to look at the credentials and we sort of categorized them as here are these sort of shorter term credentials, here are the kind of medium term credentials, and then our longer term two-year degrees, associate's degrees. So when we looked at students that exited right after the first part of the program who earned medium and long-term credentials, those showed the best earnings gains, anywhere from $1,000 to almost $2,000 um, in just a short period of time. So there is evidence that the program works in certain occupations and for certain students and certain um, credential programs. There were less effective earnings for students that earned shorter-term credentials. Those, those tended to fade away um, in certain circumstances. So what I think that says is that we'd love to um, keep, keep working on this issue around earnings and be able to study it for a much longer period of time. Um, but so for us, it's important that we looked at earnings. They were mixed in some in some instances, which is still instructive. And in other cases, they had we had strong earning gains that really mattered. Barbara, I think that's a great uh, explanation. There's one other element to the to the the research around uh, employment that I think is so very important. So many of the students who come into our program uh, as as adult students uh, have have a. a, a a, a work history that involves uh, multiple positions, relatively short-term employment, and periods of time without employment. Uh, one of the things that I think is, is really important for us to consider is the level of stability in the job. Uh, while earnings are absolutely important, you could be measuring students uh, in, in terms of their earnings against periods of time uh, un, un, under, the, under the previous circumstance where they were unemployed. Uh, many of them. And so the, the level of continuity that that provides in, in life uh, to have that consistent job, I think is you, you cannot uh, overestimate the impact that that has on the individual, their family, and their ability to continue to be educated and trained. Yeah, great point, Monty. As you think about um, the, the future of this program uh, at, at, your, at, at your college, mm -hmm. How do you see it scaling um, and, and going forward uh, in, in terms of, you know, are, do you anticipate having the same pathways in place? Are there new pathways that are starting to emerge? How do you even keep your eye on that ball uh, in terms of looking for new pathways? I mean, sort, sort of what's the future sustainability and how, how do you think that's going to work at your institution? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I look around in Illinois and it's been a tough couple of budget years, you know, <laughs> <laughs> here. So this is an expensive program to operate. It really is. But, you know, you can't get these results any other way. And so um, you have to invest in it and get creative in how you're, um, you know, getting your resources together. So at Elgin Community College, we have done a lot with braided funding strategies. We, for example, used our grant writing um, endeavors to go after multiple grants for the same initiative versus going after a lot of grants to do a lot of different things. And in that way, we've been able to kind of attain grants that fund one piece of the program and put it together like a puzzle. Our most recent 
large grant that we received was a Title III grant, a Strengthening um, Institutions grant. And that's a five-year grant that we're using specifically to take this accelerating opportunity model. And the four pathways I mentioned, we're going to grow to eight pathways. So in the fall, we're bringing on basic nursing assistant with phlebotomy, um, kind of paired in with it. And then we'll add three more over the course of the next couple of years until we have eight going. The other change that we're making in terms of bringing it to scale is we're we're offering the program to all students who enroll in the course. Because one of the lessons learned for us is that many of the career technical education students who did not come in through the doorway of Accelerating Opportunity uh, still really need the academic support, the completion rates you know, are lower than they should be. Students fall off the map. And the faculty were telling us, every one of my students should be in this program model. And so we're now doing it for anyone who's interested during, you know, the daytime. All of them enroll in welding in an AO model. And all of them receive the support. Um, so that's just an example of, I think, how how it can be brought to scale. That's really interesting because as I as I heard, you know, you talk about it, but also uh, Barbara and Monty earlier, it struck me that this this is just a smart way of doing, you know, selected programs in higher education. And may, mm-hmm. maybe it's not the right approach for every single degree that you would see across the entire humanities to sciences spectrum, but for some programs, this is just good educational practice. <laughs> and and it doesn't need to be a specialized initiative for this to have an impact on, on a wide variety of students. Exactly. I think it's, you know, the idea of something like supplemental instruction, where you have students, a, a peer leader of students providing a support course, you know, we're seeing that those results in those kind of um, initiatives at our institution, though we're trying them, have not been as high. And again, if you find something that works, you know, and we're investing in our students and we're about increasing student completion rates, then, you know, invest in a strategy that's found to be successful. And, you know, it takes a lot of support and a lot of time and not just the academic support and terms of the student support services, in terms of a career navigator, a person to help students navigate everything at the college and in their personal lives and in terms of how to get a job um, takes a lot of work for someone who's coming in at a lower level. But if you can have those results in a year, then what a good investment that is. And that's what we're supposed to be doing in the community colleges. This program uh, was was funded um through the RFP process and and that sort of thing, and and states got involved. What's the future of the Accelerating Opportunity Program on a national scale for you, Barbara? And and Monty, for you, what are your plans uh, as the president of of your system for this program? So, Scott, so we're, number one, we're so excited to finally now have our evidence to show other states that this can work for them as a model to unlock this talent in their state for their adult learners. So we have had several conversations with other states that are really interested in knowing more and looking at this. And then we're, we're working on a project that should be ready later this fall, so maybe we can come back and talk about it, where we're looking at the findings from not just accelerating opportunity, but what is the evidence base from uh, a set of evaluations and, uh, and other models that have also tended to work and work for these learners, we want to put that into a meta-analysis and really come up with this compelling 
uh, brief or document that says, here's what works for adult learners, and then take that to both a federal set of policymakers, state policymakers, college presidents, adult basic educators, you know, really put that into the field in a different way to make both the awareness of and the, really the excitement around this new learning model and this approach uh, much more much more effective for, for folks in their state. So we're, we really want to make this a national movement. Um, I joked a lot with my boss, uh, Maria Flynn, uh, uh, last week that, you know, when I came on board to Jobs for the Future six and a half years ago, she sat me down and said, what is your professional development goal? Like, I want to create a national movement on the way adult learners are, are addressed in this country. Uh, a little ambitious, but I think it's doable. So finally, after six and a half years, we have our evidence base. We've got wonderful leadership like Monty and leaders in some of our other states uh, to help us take this story to a broader base. So that's we're just excited about what the future holds. You know, Scott, as I hear Barbara talk about the, the, the goal from six years ago, I'm just blown away to think about um, the, the, the vision that, that Barbara had uh, to, to, to make this a national movement. And I truly believe that it is. Uh, your, your question was, what's, what's going on in Louisiana? What's next uh, from an accelerating opportunities perspective? Uh, I would say it to you in this way. Our board office and our colleges uh, today are fundamentally different structurally in terms of what we offer, how we offer it, uh, the, the professional development opportunities and the, and the, the, the mindset uh, oftentimes of our faculty different as a result of accelerating opportunities. Uh, I mentioned a second ago, five for six, one of the sustaining efforts around uh, our, our accelerating opportunities work is, is, uh, is this question of how do you help adult students who have not completed a high school equivalency access financial aid? It is, it is the key to long-term sustained enrollment and completion of multiple credentials. Uh, we developed, we set aside 5% of one of our annual increases in tuition uh, that amounted to about $750,000. Uh, we are now in the, in, the, in the midst of awarding scholarships for six college credits to those individuals who show an aptitude for college level work, but simply have not completed the, the high school credential as yet. Uh, those individuals, if they complete that six college credits with a C or better grade, uh, they are then able to qualify, assuming that they're financially eligible for federal Pell uh, dollars. That changes the model and creates a bridge or an opportunity for those folks to come into college credit work uh, without some special funding source, but rather to make use of the funds that are already there. So from our perspective, we have to find ways to scale like that financial aid uh, um, uh, example. But, but I think more than that, from a, a, a state and a federal perspective, being able to demonstrate the return on investment that these students are able to, to demonstrate in when they are uh, successful in, in achieving credentials and going to work and contributing uh, to the whole, I think is, is um, absolutely essential, uh, both at a state and a federal level. Uh, and, and ultimately, I think what we're talking about here is changing lives, main, maintaining a focus on the individual impact uh, as this national movement does continue forward. There are policy initiatives, uh, there, there are great uh, theoretical discussions, there are human capital kinds of uh, supply and demand discussions, but we can never lose sight of the fact that this is about changing the lives of individuals. Uh, and and uh, it truly is an example of the American dream. The social mobility, the economic mobility that exists for our accelerating opportunity students 
are the American dream. And, and uh, we cannot lose sight of that throughout uh, as we continue to take accelerating opportunities to, uh, to the next level. So uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to share the story with you. And, and uh, Barbara, thank you for the vision that you uh, set out on, on uh, many years ago. Barbara, uh, is there anything else that you would like to conclude with? No, I would just like to say, you know, Monty, I'm so inspired by the work you're doing in Louisiana and very inspired by the work, all of the states that uh, really put their heart and soul into making this work. And I would also be remiss without also thanking the partner organizations that worked hand in hand with Jobs for the Future, including Washington State Board for Community and Technical Colleges, World Education, and the National Council for Workforce Education. All those organizations brought their strengths to bear to help people like Monty and Louisiana and all the other states put this model in place. So we're just tremendously excited. We think this is a chance, as Monty mentioned, to kind of change the country. And uh, so excited to keep working on this and, and uh, taking this uh, forward. So th Scott, thanks so much for the opportunity to be part of this program. And Monty, as always, it's so great to partner with you on this message. It's certainly my pleasure to have both of you on. Uh, I, I guess you know, my, my concluding thoughts first for Barbara is that you are collecting the evidence that will speak to multiple stakeholders, including importantly, uh, people that are in the state houses across the country where so many of these decisions are influenced by budget decisions um, in the state legislatures. And I think that the evidence that you're collecting, not only in this report, but I would love to have an, a future conversation with you about that meta-analysis. That's the type of data that will speak to legislators in ways that will resonate with them uh, to get behind this. And I think that uh, what it is that you're creating as opportunities for individual success uh, is not only critical for those individuals, we've heard those stories, but it will be critical for state economies and regional economies uh, going into the future. So thank you for raising that uh, elevating the conversation in ways that I think will have high impact. And, and certainly, um, uh, President Sullivan, it's great to hear a president speak with such passion about students. And so the students that are in the, the Louisiana Community Technical College system are certainly lucky to have an advocate like you speaking on their behalf. Thank you, Scott. My guests today were Dr. Barbara Endel, Senior Director of Jobs of the Future, who was the leader of the Accelerating Opportunity Initiative, also President Monty Sullivan of the Louisiana Community and Technical College System, and Peggy Henrich, Vice President for Teaching, Learning, and Student Development at Elgin Community College in Elgin, Illinois. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced and directed in the studios of WOUB Public Media. You can always listen to us at woub.org backslash listen. We're also available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search for Teaching Matters Podcast in Facebook. Our audio engineer today was Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth on behalf of WOUB Public Media. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Music